on today's podcast episode. Predictions about how players will respond to having a new coach, the possible resurgence of Tobias Harris under Glenn Rivers, and what it will take for Sixers fans to finally move on from Jimmy Butler. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by co-site experts, Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein. Welcome to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host here, Christopher Klein, and our producer, Uriah Young. And we have another special guest on today. He's been a reoccurring guest at least, I think, twice, if not more. Welcome, uh, 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 Noah Levick of NBC Sports, everybody. Hey, guys, how are we doing tonight? Doing well. Uh, thanks, thanks to you guys for having me on again. Yeah, I think uh, I was originally on heading into this season, which was a very, very long time ago. So thanks for having me back. Over a year ago now, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And we're glad to have you back, though. We're super excited. Thank you. So thank thanks you. for coming on. Yeah, it's it's nice to meet you, Noah. I love reading your stuff uh, on the internet, and um, good to have you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, so we're going to start with some talk about Doc Rivers and the Sixers' two superstars and Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And Noah, we'll start with Joel. How do you think Doc Rivers is going to tailor his system to Embiid, and how do you see Embiid maybe fitting into fitting into the puzzle under Doc Rivers? Yeah, this is a, an interesting one for me because I think maybe Kevin Garnett is, is the most comparable guy that Doc Rivers has coached, but... Um, you look at his Doc's history, he's not had a lot of guys exactly like Joel Embiid in terms of dominant post-up players. I think um, he would be smart to continue feeding Embiid in the post. We're talking about the uh, most efficient high-volume post guy in the entire NBA. But for Embiid, uh, pick and roll is not a strength, um, so I'm interested to see if there are combinations where they look um, to, you know, form pick and roll partnerships, potentially maybe, um, you know, Joel and Tobias, see if they can get something cooking there. But historically um, that has not been great. Um, a great part of Joel's game. It's, it's been um, the posting up that, that has been the strength and the ability to draw fouls um, better than most in the league. Um, so, yeah, I, I think with doc in general, Offensively, he's going to try to tailor things to his guy's strengths, um, and he's gonna gonna learn as he goes along. Um, but that, that's my kind of initial thoughts on what the approach will be, um, and I'm I'm curious to to see how it develops. So I'm gonna I, you kind of stole my my thunder there, Noah, because I was totally thinking of Kevin Garnett too. And while yeah, we all know Joel's not a great roller in the pick and roll, but he's not terrible as a pop guy. Right. I, I can see him more. I mean, I know the mid range shot is a dead art in the NBA unless you're like super efficient at it. But I mean, Joel's is not like Joel's not super efficient. So I could see him in more pick and pops, probably with guys like Shake Milton and whichever point guard we get this offseason, whether it be in the draft or, you know, free agency or trade. But I can see that. And I also don't think you're not going to not post him up even there. One thing that I would expect to see because Doc did, the, did this with Kendrick Perkins in, 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 uh, Boston is that you always going to get the first play called for him every game this season. Mm-hmm. That's that's what a Doc did with Perk to get him involved in the game, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did that with Joel. 
It's interesting you mentioned Joel not not being a great roller. That was something that Brett Brown always harped on often through the media that um, he wanted him to you know roll much more frequently than he popped. Um, I think for Embiid, kind of maybe an under rate under the radar area um, where you'd like to see offseason improvement for the past couple years is three point shooting. Um, if he could become a league average or close to league average three point shooter. And um, that pick and pop is something that teams would need to respect a little more. I think it does open um, a few more areas up for the Sixers. So interested to see um, whether he's able to make that development. Because you look at like his, his free throw shooting, you know, this is a guy who's pretty consistently been around um, 80% from the line. He has fine form. He has good touch on a shot. You'd think mm-hmm. maybe there's potential to um, bump that three-point percentage up a little bit. Uh, so we'll see whether he's able to develop there. I think he was around 34, 35% by the end of the season, and which is about close to league average, I think. What was it, league average 36 this year? Yeah, uh, this this season, um, not bad. Um, but you'd maybe like to see a little more improvement. Um, and I, I guess just, yeah, just the line there of is this something teams need to respect or is that the shot teams want him to take? You know, maybe um, the ability to cross it cross that line into it being something that teams um have to respect to some degree um you know could be a big development so we'll see if he he's able to make that level of improvement certainly yeah and i i think joel is sort of an interesting challenge maybe for doc because he's kind of a hard guy to build an offense around we know that he likes to take a lot of possessions over in ways that maybe don't necessarily fit into the flow of the offense. Uh, you, you can't post them up every possession, A, because it wears them down, and B, because it's not always super efficient. He, he can get a little turnover prone when he, he you know defaults to that post up too often. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know he's just such a tremendous talent. There are so many different ways to use him. So I, I too, am really interested to see how he goes about it. I do think the Sixers are going to incorporate a lot more pick and rolls under Doc. But we'll probably talk about personnel a lot in this podcast. you you got to have people who can run the pick and roll, like guards who can pass and competently do that. The Sixers don't really have a ton of that right now, so it's going to be on Elton Brand, too, to put guys around Joel who can kind of help you know, maximize his fairly wide-ranging skill set. Yeah, just one, one point um, to riff off of there that I think is interesting that you brought up, Chris, is just the toll that posting up so often has on Embiid. Um, and I, I, in the Doc Rivers press conference, I actually raised the question of him of like, how do you approach load management effectively? Uh, since it's obviously something he has a lot of experience in, um, you know, mixed results recently with Kawhi Leonard and that Clippers team um, where Kawhi and Paul George and their main guys were healthy for the postseason but didn't actually perform on accounts um yeah and doc kind of acknowledged that he's he's been on both sides of the load management equation um and joel i think is the one um where if, if you know the topic of load management is is most relevant how are the sixers and doc going to deal with that um so so i'm really curious to see how that pans out because Joel, despite playing, I think, around four fewer minutes per game this season, 
did still have, you know, nagging injuries and a couple of just really unfortunate injuries like that gruesome uh, finger, you know, there's, there's nothing, that's nothing that load management can account for. It's just really bad luck. So, yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see what the minutes per game look for Embiid, whether we see him sitting out back to backs. Um, and we have to remember, too, like this is a guy who in November called the concept of load management BS. Uh, he's competitive. He wants to play. Um, but the Sixers also have to be concerned with his health come, you know, the postseason and his long term health. Um, and I think Doc is very aware of all those factors. Um but it's still an open question of what the exact strategy is going to be there with Embiid's load management. So yeah, kind of a tangential topic there, but um, maybe something you know interesting to consider when we're talking about how they're going to use uh, Joel Embiid. Yeah, and I just want to think. We want to add one more thing before we move on is that one thing that we saw in the bubble that Joel started incorporated into his post game is that fadeaway jumper. Kind of looks like KG. Dirk Nowinski is. I think we're going to see a lot more of that because that's one way you can prevent Joel by waste, from wasting too much energy in the post is by him doing that turnaround fader. And he seems to like it. And it was looking nice. It still needs some work, but I think it, it, that could become a real arsenal in his game, especially the way that KG used it in Boston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and I, some, and I think this is a good segue. You mentioned earlier, Noah, that Brett Brown really wanted Joel to roll more, to set harder screens. And he didn't always buy into that necessarily, didn't always go as hard as he could have in those in that area. And, you know, we're going to move on and talk about Ben Simmons here. I think you could say a similar thing about Ben is that he didn't necessarily buy into the off-ball role as, as well as some might have hoped, you know, in terms of screening and rolling and cutting. So how do you see Doc incorporating Ben into this offense? How do you see him fitting in? And, and what do you think about that? Yeah, for me, we just didn't get enough of a sample size where, um, you know, with, with Shake in the starting lineup and Ben as the quote-unquote point forward, to really draw too many great conclusions. I did think um, that we saw Ben being used at the elbow more frequently and as a screener and roller more frequently. There was significant promise there. I actually found um, an interesting stat when we're talking about the elbow touches uh, so from beginning of the season to December 31st, he was getting 2.4 elbow touches per game, 0.35 points per elbow touch, and then those same numbers went up to 3.8 elbow touches per game and 0.54 points per elbow touch um, from January 3rd to the end of the season. So like pretty pretty major uh, jump both in uh, his productivity from the elbow and how much they were using him there. Um, and I, I also recall around that same time, around the turn of the year, um, they did try to work on that Richardson-Simmons pick-and-roll pairing. Uh, remember, actually, I think it was January 3rd, that one Houston game where it was super effective. Um, so I think it's something that, um, that, that, that they have to continue to explore to you know, fully get answers on the right way to use Simmons. And there, there's probably not a clear, easy answer there. You know, when I, when I think about it in terms of um, points of reference for Doc, it's almost like a Rajon Rondo, Blake Griffin hybrid um, potentially. Um, and, and I think that's what Brett Brown was aiming for uh, something along those lines where Ben Simmons is this really, you know, dynamic transition player who's, 
super creative in the open court and hitting his teammates for threes and creating points that way. And then in the half court, he's this guy you can use in the elbow region and you can use in the pick and roll. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be some sort of hybrid. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like. I think doc is still figuring that out. Um, he mentioned in an introductory press conference that he's not too concerned with the jump shot at this stage. Um, and he sees Ben as one who has a lot of positives offensively, who creates a lot of points for himself and his teammates. Um, and I think he'll, he'll figure out those details and try to construct, um, you know, a game plan around Ben, um, as time goes on. Um, but yeah, those are some of the initial points that, that come to mind for me. So I'm not going to lie. You kind of stole, you stole my stuff again there. You uh, know, either that or that, or with like me and you are on the same page. Okay. <laughs> um, so because I told, I'm totally in the process of coming up with an article saying how will Doc use Ben will be more like Rondo or more like Blake. And I think you're spot on. It's probably going to be a hybrid of the both. Uh, I can definitely see him using him in the pick and roll. Ben's super efficient in the pick and roll. We saw that in the all-star game. We saw it the second half of the season, especially in the bubble. He's a great finisher. I don't see why you wouldn't do that. But I think part of it is it depends on if they can get a legitimate ball handling guard that can, because I don't think Shake Milton's that. I don't think he's there yet. Uh, maybe he can get there next season, but I see him more as an off guard that can handle, that can create his own shot. But I don't see him as a person that's a high volume assist guy in that regard. Uh, it very, you know, and he's not super creative in his assist either for the most part. So, and, and against, tougher defenders he seems to have struggled as a point guard so i think in terms like i said it depends on if they can get a legit uh, point guard this offseason but i expect more of a blake griffin role but definitely you know in the open court he's going to be rage on Rondo. and like i said i think he's just going to be a high volume pick and roll player and this comes bad down and i think him and joel in brand brett did this against doc uh in the game that the first game al horford was benched we saw that deep pick and roll right. where you saw that they were basically running it on the block and it was surprisingly very effective. And I liked what I saw from it. I think the six, I think doc rivers will definitely use that moving forward with Ben being the ball handler in that case. But I, I can definitely see him being a super efficient roller in doc system. And I think we'll just have to wait and see what type of other personnel they I think the personnel changes this offseason will determine whether or not he's going to be a quote-unquote point guard or a point forward. But we'll all just have to wait and see on that. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Lucas. I was just about to say I think a lot of this is going to come down to how exactly the roster pans out. You know, if Doc is going to try his hand at Al Horford in the starting five again, then obviously that changes how Ben looks compared to Shake Milton. Or if they get a Chris Paul some somehow or buddy heel and that'll dramatically change how they use Ben. So a lot of this is kind of up in the air still. But I, I do think both of you made great points. Noah, so what are your thoughts on guys like Shake Milton, Jason Richardson, Al Horford, if he's still on Team Thibel and Cork Moss, especially but just the team in general, how do you think they're gonna perform under Doc Rivers, but those guys in particular? Doc's, you know, memories of Shake Milton are pretty vivid. <laughs> he had that uh, coming out nationally televised game uh, in February um, that Doc uh, mentioned in, in his in his press conference, and 
I think, um, will initially color um, Doc's perception of Shake and give him a lot of belief that um, this is a player with, you know, real potential. Um, so I, I think, yeah, like, like Chris brought up, um, personnel is going to play a huge role with Shake. Is he a guy that they need to rely on as a primary ball handler? Is he going to remain a starter? Um, I think those are questions that we probably can't give great answers to yet until we know what this roster looks like. But I think um, I think Doc has seen promise in Shake and, and is going to be intrigued by what he can bring to the table. Um, with Furkan Korkmaz, I'm really interested in that. I mean, I, I think probably the most uh, recent guy that Rivers has coached that would be somewhat similar would be Landry Shamit, you know, a former teammate of Korkmaz's, uh, just in terms of the, the shot-making ability. And then also, um, though I, I think Shamit is better in this respect, the ability to run a pick and roll and, you know, make make decisions as a ball handler to some extent. Uh, we've seen flashes of that from Cork Maz. It's something that, that Brett Brown thought he had within him. Um, so, yeah, I, I think with Cork Maz, it, it's the, the looming question um, that he didn't do himself any favors with during the playoffs is, can he play competent defense at the NBA level? Is he someone you can trust in a playoff series? Um, I think there's uh, plenty of reason for skepticism on that front. And, uh, you know, Doc Rivers, as a guy who's coached many, many playoff games, is not going to um, play someone who's vulnerable defensively in the postseason. So that that would be, I I would figure, um, you know, the concern with Korkmaz. Um, yeah, Josh Richardson, if he's still on the team, um, the, the pick and roll partnership to me would be um, an intriguing question in there. You know, Doc will look to form, you know, certain partnerships and grow them over the course of the season and develop chemistry. Um, will he see if the, you know, the Richardson Simmons pairing works? Um, will he try Richardson and B? Will he try a little bit of both? Uh, I'm curious there. Um, it was, you know, a di- disappointing first season for Richardson, I think overall, um, though the injuries, you know, made things a lot tougher for him. And, um, of course, at the end of the year, he had the pretty frank comments about Brett Brown, you know, not having enough accountability. Um, so the, the locker room side of that's also, you know, certainly going to be a relevant factor, um, how Rivers and Richardson get along. Um, and, of course, this is all assuming uh, Richardson is not a guy included in a trade this offseason. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the role players. And maybe you, you guys can touch on, touch on a few of the others and, and chime in there. I, I think you're spot on again, Noah. Like you said with Shake, a lot of it, again, is just going to come down to who is on the team. Um, ideally, I think you play him less on ball. You primarily rely on him as, you know, a spot-up shooter and a bit of a slasher and a guy who can kind of play off the ball. That's, I think, where he's at his best. I don't think he's the primary ball handler, ideally, on a contender. So that's an area the Sixers will need to address. The same with Josh, I think, last season. The Sixers really relied too much on him and Tobias Harris, who we're going to talk about in a second, to, you know, create off the dribble, create their own offense. That's really not their style. That's part of why he struggled, I think. It's just because the role wasn't right for him. So it's going to be up to, again, to Elton to put better personnel around them to help not only Joel and Ben, but to help the other core pieces as well. 
And you know, with Thibault, there are only so many ways you can use him. <laughs> Offensively, he's pretty pretty limited in what he can do, so I don't know if there's a ton to talk about there. Horford is interesting just because it feels kind of like there's like a 50-50 shot. He's not even on the team next year. Uh, but if he is, Doc said he's going to spend time next to Joel. That's pretty much inevitable. If he is on the team, there's really no way around it when you're paying him that much money. And he is who he is. He's still Al Horford, and he's still going to command that type of respect, at least in terms of minutes. So I, if he is still here, I'm interested to see how much time he spends next to Joel. I assume he wouldn't get the starting spot back, but you never know. Maybe Doc sees something there that Brett didn't, but I'm, I think we're all pretty sure at this point that that trio just with Joe and Ben and Ouch does not work together. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. So, yeah, I, I kind of agree with Chris and, and you two know that I think it depends on personnel, but I think that if he's a starting two guard, I think that's good for him. I think that's fine for the team. Uh, but I also could see him being used similarly how Doc has used like Lou Williams and Jamal Crawford as a spark plug off the bench. Mm-hmm. I could see that as a strong possibility because, you know, if he makes him like the de facto six man, I, I mean, Doc Rivers has had plenty of success, success with six men in the past, not just Lou and Jamal. But if you go back to his days with the Celtics, I believe. Who was Sam Cassell was the sixth man off the bench for the no James Posey was the sixth man off the bench for them in that championship run. They had Stefan Marbury and um, and Sam Cassell also be legitimate uh, bench rotation guys for him in the past as well. So I think that I think Shake Milton's in good hands, and I think Doc Rivers is going to definitely develop him very well. Josh Richardson, like you said, Chris, I think he's going to be more of an off ball slasher. You know, spot up in the corner. I think we realized this season that this past season that he's just not ball handler. That Miami made him out, out to be when he was there. I think he's just much better used as a slasher. Maybe make his you know dri- create a little bit off the dribble, but not not expect him to do too much. Uh, that's for sure. If Al Horford's on the team, which I, I I'm kind of hoping that he's not, but and that's nothing against Al. It's just not a good fit. But if he is. Honestly, I think Rivers is going to use Al in the very in, in in terms of rotation the same way that Brett did last year. Not all three of them, not no Al Ben uh, Joel combos, but you know you could very well see him coming in for one of those two guys. And I don't think we'll see Doc Rivers is very good at staggering his stars minutes, so I definitely don't think we'll see Al's not going to see time without both of them, but unless one of them's injured, but um. That being said, I think, like I said, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think in terms of actually using him, that's going to be a little bit trickier. But in terms of rotation, I think that's what we'll see, similar to what Brown did last year, because that's really the only thing you can do. Thibel, I expect Thibel, like uh, River said in his press conference, that he believes Thibel's already an all-defensive team player. He's going to make Thibel not just good defensively. I think he's going to make him kind of like... Uh, like an alpha on defense like Marcus Smart was. Because I believe Doc Rivers' first season was with Marcus Smart, and then you got other guys like Avery Bradley, who was a really good two-way defender under Doc. I think he's going to develop his jump shot a little bit more. I don't think we'll see much in terms of dribbling, but I think his three-point shooter, Mike, three-point shooting will come, become a little bit more consistent. But Brett Brown has done great things with perimeter defenders in the past. Avery Bradley, Matt Barnes. 
Was Trevor Ariza ever on the Clippers? I don't honestly remember, but. Hey, Lucas, yeah. I just I want to jump on your Matisse Thibel bandwagon real quick because earlier I heard Chris saying some some little dismissive things about my oh, guy. No. There will be oh, no, no trade talk tonight about Matisse Thibel. Okay? <laughs> He's off the table. You can trade. You can trade Tobias. You can trade Horford. Nobody bring up a Thibel trade. All right, thank you guys. Back to the program. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. You're right. I understand where you're coming from. Well, I don't necessarily agree. I think he's more untouchable. But I, I'm not saying that he's untouchable, but I think he's a higher va- trade value trip chip than uh, most give him credit for. That being said, uh, Korkmaz, I wouldn't even compare him to Shamit because Shamit's consistently a good shooter. Korkmaz has his up and downs. And outside of shooting, he doesn't provide you anything. So... I honestly, I can't. I try. I went through my head today trying to think of guys who Corkmoss was kind of like under Brown, uh, Doc Rivers, and I honestly can't think of a good one that got any legitimate minutes consistently. So I kind of expect if if the team does pick up his uh, team option for this year, I don't expect him to have a consistent role unless he becomes a consistent shows proves to be a consistent shooter, but. And that's going to be hard to sell because Doc's not like guys that don't play defense unless they're like superstars. Right, so. right. Yeah, no, I mean, just with the the Shamit um, somewhat comparison, I think my thinking was more just in terms of role, a guy's who, guy whose mm-hmm. main strength is the shooting um, mm-hmm. than who does theoretically have this secondary skill that you can call on in certain lineups or in certain situations to handle the ball to run a pick mm. um, but I firmly agree that uh, Shamit is a more lot more reliable more developed um, player <laughs> across the board for the most part um, yeah just with Horford um, just a brief thought there I think it was after game three um just asked asked Brett Brown about the decision to to go back to Horford in the starting lineup over Thibault, and a uh, very memorable quote he said, "If we're going down, I'm going down with him." And to me, that kind of symbolized uh, or encapsulated the season um, pretty well. Mm-hmm. This notion of they um, put a ton of money into these offseason investments of Horford and Tobias Harris. Um, and Brett Brown at that point, I guess, felt compelled to just go with where they spent the most money. Um, and I think if Al Horford is on the team moving forward, that probably can't be the mentality. That can't be. Doc, yeah, Doc Rivers has to be open if Al Horford is still on his roster to using him in, in a more limited role, if that's what's best for the team, which it sure seems like it might be. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so yeah, I was just going to piggyback off that really just kind of a broad question for both of you. Like, what does the future for Al Horford look like? Like if he's on the Sixers, obviously there are maybe better ways to use him than Brown did. Uh, he can still play make to agree you know, from the elbow. We've seen Doc do some of that with bigs in the past maybe that helps or even if he's off the team just like where do we think Al is at is he still like a quote-unquote good player how do we kind of view his future and I guess no you can take that first mm-hmm. uh, um, my, it's it's hard to say when um, the fit ended up being so poor here or, or at least was last year 
my sense is when healthy, he's still a slightly above average NBA player or a positive impact NBA player, shall we say? Mm-hmm. I think he's still an exceptional passer. He's one of the best big man passers in the league still. Um, in terms of if he's here, I think probably the ideal situation is low twenties in terms of minutes per game and backup center and maybe the minutes together with Embiid um, are shrunk down to seven or eight per game. Um, Maybe that's the ideal situation. I think something I found interesting was that the Horford-Corkmaz pairing, um, both just from the eye test and then also the numbers during the regular season, was really good. There seems to be a real chemistry there in the two-man game and the triple handoffs, Um, and it seems that they got the most out of each other. Um, so I think if he's on the Sixers, maybe that's an area that you continue to probe and see, um, if it's a situation where Quirk Maz can maximize Horford and vice versa. Um, but yeah, if he's here, I'm thinking low twenties in terms of minutes per game and backup center and try to minimize those minutes together with Joel. If he's elsewhere, I'm really curious to see, how that looks and if the fit would be better than it is uh, here. And my sense is that um, the health, the health is a concern. I mean, he's, he's 34 years old. Um, he admitted before the restart that he wasn't physically or physically where he wanted to be um, during the season dealt with, um, you know, left hamstring tightness, left knee soreness was what it was officially listed as for the few games that he did miss. But I think, he was playing a number of games at less than optimal health. But then again, you know, he's 34 years old. Is he ever really going to return to optimal health? I don't think you can say yes with much confidence. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at with with Al Horford. I think um, still still a good basketball player in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, this this first season in Philadelphia and, you know, perhaps very, you know, perhaps the only season um, couldn't have gone much worse in terms of how he worked, um, you know, with the Sixers best players, or at least, you know, specifically um, with Joel Embiid, you know, minus 0.5 net rating in the regular season. And then in the playoffs, that was negative uh, 34.3, which is hard to fathom. So I pushed for this prior to the recent, start or once uh, Al Horford was put on the bench I think the best way to use Al Horford moving forward if he's a member of this team is to and this is a way to help load manage Joel Embiid have Joel Embiid play about um, 30 to 28 minutes a game that will load manage him for the season we saw that that was semi-effective this year and then have Horford play the primarily just play backup center. Depending on matchup, he might be able to play some more in some games versus others. Like the Raptors, I'm sure that would be a good matchup for him. The Lakers, teams that have two legitimate bigs, like you can play or Horford with Joel and not be killed defensively. But that being said, um, I don't. I think if he's not on the team. I think it really depends depends on fit, but I still see him as as a starting center in the NBA for most teams. Um, I've written about it several teams in the past that I think that would be good fits for him. I think the Golden State Warriors would be a good fit. I think the Rockets would def 
need him because he stretches the floor and they don't have a center right now. Uh, you could definitely get a, a deal with him going to uh, to Houston done. The Sacramento Kings have obviously been connected to him. And I forget who, and maybe Noah, you can enlighten me, but somebody said recently that it would be a win-win if the they did a straight-up swap for uh, Buddy Heald and Al Horford. Um, I forgot who said that. I know it was a Hunden of the Sixers, and I can't remember who said that, but somebody said that. I think that could be a possibility. Like I said, the, I think it depends on fit, but I think there's a lot of teams that he could still start for. Um, is he going to be a – he's not the same defender he used to be, but I think he's – a defending center is he wasn't terrible this season. And, you know, he's not – he's never going to be a shot blocker, but I think you could definitely plug him in a lot of places. Heck, even Boston could use him back. I don't think they would ever do that, but, you know, that could definitely be a possible – you know, like I said, there's a lot of teams I think he could still start for. He's a he's a starting level center. I don't think he's the all star anymore because his, his like Noah said, his health and age are starting to catch up to him. But I think he's a starter if he's not on the Sixers for most teams. And I think that if he's on the Sixers, you use him to a twenty to twenty two game minutes per game capacity for most nights. Yeah, for sure. I think both of you are spot on. It, I think we're pretty much at a point where it can't really get worse. But I'm also not 100% sure how, how much it can get better. I don't know if it can get much better. Uh, so, so it's pretty grim on that front. But we're going to move on now and talk about Tobias Harris, who, as ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski said, was at least part of ownership in the front office's thinking when bringing on Doc Rivers. Tobias had the best half season of his career under Doc in L.A. Uh, so Noah... Why was Doc better at maximizing Tobias than Brett was when he was a Clipper? And how do you think that might transfer over to his offense in Philadelphia? Part of it is just uh, Tobias was naturally, I think, in more favorable situations there as a as a first or second option on that overachieving 2018-19 Clippers team. Uh, but something I did um, find recently that you know, what was pretty compelling to me was um, that Tobias was much more, or, you know, significantly more effective at getting to the line in Los Angeles, um, specifically as a driver um, and as a pick and roll player. Um, so in Philly last year, Tobias was used as a pick and roll ball handler just 3.3 times per game. Um, in, in LA in 2018 19, that was five times per game. Um, and he was, you know, scoring at a higher rate and also getting to the line more there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it boils down to a combination of just naturally um, advantageous circumstances for Tobias and then Doc, um, you know, finding ways to use him in the pick and roll as a straight line driver. And, you know, he, he called him at, at his press conference, you know, a a big three quick four. Um, and last year he, you know, was mostly, um, a big three who occasionally would try to exploit mismatches, um, through posting up or through isolations. But outside of that, um, rarely seemed to have good matchups offensively, um, just because of the way the team was constructed. Um, so as we've said with many of these points, we'll see what the roster looks like. We'll see, um, you know, 
what what that lends itself to. But I think you know the Doc Tobias connection. Um, we shouldn't expect necessarily there to be dramatic transformations. You know, Tobias I think shot about seven points better from three point range there than he has in Philadelphia. I don't know if we should expect him to ever return to that form or, or what's up with him just hitting um, open three-point shots at a much lower rate here. Um, but I do think that we should at least um, see him use a bit more in the pick and roll. Um, and we should see a coach who uh, consciously tries to find more situations in which, okay, Tobias, um, you have an advantage, you know, let's get you the ball against this defender that you're either bigger than or quicker than. So that, so that's kind of what I'm looking to see um, with Doc and Tobias. So it's interesting that you brought up how, how he can be used and, you know, that he's a big three, small four. And I think Brett Brown uh, really kind of messed up here because I think he got stuck in his head post up, post up, post up. He did that with everybody. He even posted up Josh Richardson. Like, and I get it because you have the size advantage, but that's not how you take advantage of size advantages today in the NBA, like, unless you're Joel Embiid. You got to try to do it different ways. And I think Doc Rivers knows how he's going to be more open to trying different ways with Tobias because he's done it in the past. Now, I knew that jo- Tobias was a great role guy. Uh, I didn't really see too many film, and maybe that was just my, my part of poor research, but I don't remember him rolling being a ball handler in the pick and roll. But if that's the case and he was a good one in, in L.A., I, w- I could expect to see um, Doc use him in a similar way in that regard. Um, but I also want to say this. Almost everybody that's been in Philly under Brett Brown's system has not shot great, has seen their career averages and three-point percentage go down. Even J.J. Reddick saw a slight dip in his three-point percentage. The only person that hasn't is Markel Fultz. And, well, we, we don't need to get into a Markel Fultz discussion tonight, guys, but you get what I'm saying here. Uh, not a lot of people shot well from three-point range under Brett Brown. I expect that to change under under Doc Rivers because he's definitely brought out a lot of great three-point shooters, Ray Allen, even Shamit. You got guys like um, – trying to think of some other guys that he's had that have been really solid three-point shooters, Jamal Crawford, Lou Williams – you know, you could make a whole entire close to a full roster of guys. And I think part of the reason why Tobias, you know, um, did that well in L.A. was partially because he was surrounded by shooters. Who was their center at the time before Tobias? Because Danilo Gallinari, you had Shea Gilgis-Alexander, you had Pat Beverly. And who was their starting five that year before they traded for Zubac after the, at the trade deadline? Because I honestly can't really remember. Harrell, Montrez Harrell, probably. Was was it, was he their starter? I knew he was their bench guy, but I wasn't sure if he was starting at that. But my point is that the floor was much more spread out. The Sixers don't have that. That's going to be tough uh, right now, and that's going to be tough on Rivers. But I just I think using him in the pick and roll because as a role guy, because I like I said I don't. Tobias was barely used as a role man this season, and uh, you know that's on Brett Brown. And I think Doc Rivers is going to use him as a role guy a lot more. And, uh, you know, probably as a pick, you know, a guy that runs it as well. But I think he's really dangerous as the role guy. I think, and the stats would prove it as well. But he can just, he can slither in the paint so well. 
despite him being like a bulky, you know, forward, like he's good at finishing at the rim too. So I think him as a finisher is going to be really important this year. Yeah. And just to answer your question, Lucas, I'm pretty sure it was um, Marcin Gortat who started before Zubac got there. Had Boban um, as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boban. Yeah. Don't forget about Boban. Yeah. Boban was there too. Um, I but Boban. yeah, I think we all do. Um, but just to go back to what Noah said, and I think he hit it, you know, the nail on the head again with putting Tobias in advantageous positions. He's not a particularly great athlete at six foot eight or whatever height he's listed at. He's not going to create a ton of space in isolation off the dribble. You need to put him in those pick and rolls, whether it's as a roller or as a ball handler, find other Mm -hmm. ways to get him moving downhill and to get him kind of advantages that he can't gain naturally with his first step. I think that's going to be a big key for Doc. And as far as the three-point shooting goes, I think a lot of that comes down to rhythm. Some of that's on Brett. Some of that's on Embiid and the other players. The Sixers just haven't been great at establishing a rhythm on offense. And I think that can kind of throw shooters out of it. If there's any way to explain the strange like void of quality shooters in Philadelphia, it's probably that. It's just that guys can't really find a way to get into a rhythm. Hopefully Doc changes that. He said he wants the Sixers to play at a faster pace. They're going to move more off the ball, ideally. Maybe that, you know, boosts a few percentages. But overall, I think you nailed it, Noah. I think they just have to find more ways to get Tobias moving downhill, get him drawing fouls, stuff of that nature, because that's that's why he was so good in L.A. Yeah, just just with the three-point shooting, too. Um, they did finish ninth in three-point percentage. Uh, this past season, the bigger problem was just the lack of attempts, you know, being a bottom 10 yeah. team in three-point mm-hmm. attempts. And a huge part of that is just simply roster construction. You had a you had a coach in Brett Brown begging Tobias and Josh Richardson to hunt threes and to take those attempts whenever they were available. Um, but you just had a lack of shooters around uh, your two-star players. And yeah, I think some of the shooting is honestly mysterious. It feels a little bit cursed. I mean, you think of that uh, stretch earlier this season where Tobias had an 0 for 23 streak. Part of that's, um, well, one one game he said he was sick. So, you know, maybe you factor that in. But part of that at a certain point is mental and is just who knows what the heck's going on here when a guy who's historically been an above-average three-point shooter uh, can't buy a shot. So we'll see if he rediscovers a little of that, a little of that uh, Clippers magic. I don't think the Sixers can bank on it. You know, I don't think um, they can necessarily expect it to be a situation where Doc Rivers is their coach now, and all of a sudden, Tobias Harris is an All-Star. Uh, level player and, and is you know worth the, the massive contract they gave him but you know maybe it's realistic to expect some small improvements um in the way he's used and at a very bare minimum you have um him reunited with the coach who he knows and respects and gets along well with um and yeah i'm really curious to see what the exact impact of that ends up being I think we'll see him more as a leader this this season, too. I mean, we saw a little bit at the end of last year, but I think with Doc here, with Doc with Doc being here, I think we'll see Tobias as the team leader for sure moving forward because he was already starting to assume that role. And I think with Doc here, having a coach that he likes and that he's familiar with, like you said, definitely bring out that leadership quality even more. Yeah, to be fair to Tobias, I, I'd certainly classify him very much as a leader this past season. I know 
he's someone that was respected in the locker room, especially for um, his community involvement and, you know, his social engagement. Um, but yeah, the leadership issue and, you know, is, is certainly uh, something Rape Rivers will, you know, hope, hopefully address that, you know, um, with, with, you know, it's, it's never a good sign when one, when your players are talking about there being insufficient accountability and there needing to be more conflict um, and those sort of buzzwords are being thrown around. Um, and part of it is, yeah, that the personalities on this team not being especially confrontational, which is what someone like Josh Richardson was used to in Miami um, with that heat culture of, of when you're, you're called out, when you make a mistake and there's very direct uh, modes of confrontation and communication. Um, so, uh, you know, Rivers perhaps will, will try to foster that in the locker room a little more, but it's not something that will develop overnight. So we're going to move on, and we have to have our obligatory Jimmy Butler segment at this point. The Heat forced a game six. We are recording this in the middle of game six. It does not look like Miami is going to make it to a game seven right now. I believe it is 64-36 at halftime, so not ideal for them. But either way, forcing the Lakers to six game is a pretty big accomplishment for that team, and a lot of that falls on Jimmy Butler's shoulders. I guess, why can't Sixers fans let go of Butler, and should they still be upset is probably the better question to ask here. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm maybe the absolute best person to answer that question just because, um, yeah, I try to I try to approach things, um, you know, as a reporter just looking at the situation and, and assessing it and providing relevant analysis. Um as far as fans go, I think um, they're entitled to feel whatever they want to feel about Jimmy Butler, and it would be very logical to be upset, to you know have regret, to constantly be wondering what could have been um, when you see someone um, with this special talent who's you know led his team to the finals and is, is shining on a national stage. And for me personally. Um, it, you know, doesn't reflect well on these, you know, still intact Sixers front office um, that uh, someone, you know, who was within their grasp and who they had the ability to um, secure long term um, is thriving elsewhere. So that's my perspective on it. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell fans to feel one way or another about Jimmy Butler. Um, I think it's you have to admire his competitive drive, um, his clutch heroics, um, his will to win, you know, all qualities that we saw glimpses of with the Sixers, but ultimately, um, you know, didn't work out here long term. Um, so, yeah, that, I, I know it's um, inevitably something that, you know, always seems to be on fans' minds, and I can fully understand that. I can't talk to why every fan can't let him go, but I guess... Like Noah said, it's, you know, it's what could have been. I guess you can compare him to the, for all the men listening, you know, the girl that got away. He's kind of like that girl that got away for all Sixers fans. Because you see, you know, you you know that you'd be much better off with them than without them. And that's proven true. And should they still be upset? They shouldn't be upset with Butler leaving because... And I think Chris said this last week. We we can see how much of a mess the front office and ownership are in right now. You can't really blame Jimmy for wanting out, especially 
based off of what he said during his JJ Reddick podcast. So don't be upset with Jimmy. You should be up, upset with ownerships for still keeping that front office together for the most part. Uh, I yeah. mean, we saw we saw we saw that you know there was rumors that uh, I can't Alex remember. Rucker. Yeah, Alex Rucker was supposed to be out, but there's no been no official word on that. So who knows? But uh, Chris, go ahead, take it away. I'm, I know you're you're itching at the bit for this one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean at this point, I I mean I personally see no reason for animosity towards Jimmy on a personal level. It seems like he made a tremendous decision for himself. Um, all props to him for a, a wonderful year in Miami. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the blame here just falls again on the front office. We've said this podcast after podcast. It's clear they didn't create an environment in which Jimmy felt he was properly appreciated. I think a lot of it comes down to Jimmy's more confrontational personality. Maybe not rubbing them the right way. It seems like he kind of, I've said this before, he kind of called the Sixers on their BS and they didn't respond terribly well. We've heard again through multiple situations that the front office structure is really a mess. It still seems to be a mess. I don't think they've solved that like they wanted everyone to think they had after the season. And at this point, I mean, he left and he's in the final. So I, I don't really see how you could be upset at him personally. Yeah, that that's where I'm at. Um, so Noah, what do you think it would take maybe for fans to turn the page? What do you think Philly has to do to kind of wash that out of their mouths at this point? I mean, I think if you're just looking at it objectively, um, this guy who who you had um, has made a finals, and your team just got swept. So you're gonna have to get close to evening that maybe in the near future for. Um, fan perception to change would be my guess. Um, and Miami has a good young team. Um, and they, they dealt with uh, major injuries, these, these finals as well. So I think there's reason to think that they will be a contender with Jimmy there for a long time. Uh, so the Sixers have their work cut out for them. Uh, in terms of that question of what, it, you know, are fans ever going to move on or forget about this? But yeah, look, I mean, I, I look at fandom as a, a very subjective thing. You know, every fan has their own experiences, their own perceptions, their own things they prioritize. And yeah, so each fan will will have to come to their own conclusion. In terms of turning the page, I think the front office needs to go, I mean, preferably ownership, but let's face it, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Front office needs to be rebooted, and I think, like Noah said, I think there needs to be a very deep playoff run, if not a champion, an NBA Finals appearance, if not a championship. But like I said, there will never, it will never completely turn the page because he's the girl that got away. He's the one that got away. So I mean, like, not to call Jimmy Butler a girl, but you guys get the, the, you know, comparison. You know, he's the one that got yeah. away. So he, and, I don't think the page will ever be closed. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if the Sixers are really ever going to get over this. Um, I, I mean, at this point, Miami has pretty much succeeded Philly as like the young up-and-coming team with cap space and a lot of desirable assets in the East. They've kind of taken over that position that Philly had not long ago. And a lot of that is on Butler, who has really transformed not necessarily the culture, which has always been strong, but he's really elevated it to another level. And I guess I have one more kind of big question here is, was Jimmy Butler the Sixers' best player? Ooh, Noah. That's interesting. Um, 
you just mean last year or his career or like if we're looking at it right now would you say that Jimmy is a better player than Joel Embiid who well, would you yeah. want to build a team around? If he was a sixer right now, he'd be the team's best player. I think I'd feel confident in saying that. Yeah. I mean, not just Embiid and Simmons have a ton of talent and a ton of potential, and they've accomplished some impressive things in their young careers, but um, neither has been beyond the second round of the playoffs. And uh, Jimmy Butler was just going toe to toe with LeBron James. So, yeah, he'd be the best player on a lot of teams, including the Sixers, right now. You know, not by a wide margin. I mean, Embiid and Simmons are, I think, you know, I don't think it would be controversial to say they're top 20 uh, players in, in the NBA. You know, they're, they're both all-stars. But he'd, he'd be the best, uh, best Sixer right now if he was still on the team. And, um, yeah, the Sixers would be much better off if he was still on the team. Don't think you're going to get many arguments with that one. It's it's I, I'm gonna kind of pull Max Kellerman here and I'm gonna rephrase the question. I don't know if he'd be the best player on the team because, like you guys said, Joel and Ben are both twenty top twenty players, and well, I, well, I, at least until this finals, Jimmy wasn't. But I would certainly well, say he's the most important player. I would I would disagree with that assessment pretty strongly. You, I think you, Jimmy's been I a think top a, twenty guy all year. He might be a top ten guy. I mean, at this point, at this point, yes, I, I agree. I think but he I like was always ahead of Ben, even last season. I think most people would have ranked him ahead of Ben. Um, but yet think, again, he didn't make an All Star, but Ben did. Yeah, and a lot of that's situational. Uh, obviously, yeah. team team context is going to matter a lot in terms of who who does the best. Joel probably puts up bigger numbers in the regular season. Most most years but it's clear that jimmy has another gear that he can turn on in these big moments and we have not seen that with joe or ben and i I think that's a big part of why i'd probably lean jimmy if i had to pick the best out of the three and it's like you said no he's gone toe-to-toe with lebron and put up some pretty historic numbers in these finals and the sixers again with joel got swept out of the first round we haven't really seen joel have that big historic game or outing or series in the playoffs yet. So until that happens, I think you have to hand it to Jimmy. Guys, just imagine if Tom Thibodeau didn't run Jimmy into the ground the first half of his career. (laughs) Imagine how much more consistent he could be on a nightly basis right now. And how scary that would be. Yeah, Thibodeau's gonna he's gonna run RJ Barrett into the ground in New York. Don't forget about <laughs> Kevin Knox, man. He'll run <laughs> Kevin Knox into the ground too. Yeah. Gosh. Hey, I was gonna say, Chris and Lucas, you were saying that your point was that Ben Simmons made the All Star team last year when Jimmy's on the team. Well, Jimmy Butler doesn't have the whole continent of Australia voting for him. Fair <laughs> so enough. He has Fair millions enough. of votes coming from overseas. And also, and like I said, I, I believe Jimmy would be the most important player on the Sixers right now. I don't know if I would crown him sure. the best, but in, in terms of overall just skill and talent, but in terms of importance, he would be the most important. Yeah, there, there's not a no-brainer answer. I guess for me, what I, was, what I had in mind was the Sixers' mantra this whole year was built for the playoffs, and then they, um, they failed, you know, in the playoffs, and... Jimmy Butler has proven he's actually built for the playoffs. So that is absolutely true. That's what that's what came to mind for me with the criteria. But yeah, no easy answer. Um, 
not not saying that um, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons aren't exceptional uh, talents and, you know, aren't guys who are in the top echelon of the league. Um, but yeah, at this moment in time, um, Jimmy Butler has sh- opened a lot of eyes and shown a lot of people he's really special. Question is, how much longer Butler can Butler do this for? Yeah, I mean, you saw that uh, that image from Game 5 um, of him slumped over after having played damn near every second of that game. Um, so I'm sure this is, he's hoping um, to recuperate in the offseason and rest his body. I know he's as diligent um, as they come with his his work his workouts and, and being in uh, top notch shape, um, but yeah, it's a valid it's a valid question. I think um, he'll he'll definitely still be in his prime for another year or two, but then beyond that, um, you have to wonder when the wear and tear are going to negatively impact his performance i would say that it's helpful in miami um that he has passing is such an important part of his role there setting up his teammates um and you know athleticism is you know not a necessary component there you know you look maybe at al horford as someone analogous of when athleticism and agility fade you know the, the passing remains a really valuable skill um, so yeah. Well, uh, right. I think it's your time. So our social media question of the week was the following, which player will thrive most under Doc Rivers? And the choices were Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Tobias Harris. We'll start with Facebook this week. So out of all the responses, uh, we had quite a few. The one that got the most likes on Facebook was a six or cents fan. His name is Jay Lee. He said Tobias had his best season under Doc Rivers, so he will bounce back. But I think Doc is going to unlock something in Ben. So Jay Lee, thanks for responding. He thinks that Ben Simmons is going to be unlocked by Doc Rivers. And if we switch over to Twitter, we have at C underscore March Banks. He didn't type anything. He just posted a GIF, and you have a picture of uh, Ben Simmons. I think he just came off of a major dunk, and then he gives a little wink to the to the camera. So it seems like, guys, the majority of the people on Twitter and Facebook think that Ben Simmons is going to flourish under this new coaching system. What do you guys think? Uh, I like that. I think that's logical. Um, I think for all the all that we had to say about Tobias Harris and um, the possibility of some of that Clippers success carrying over there's plenty of reason to be skeptical um especially given our our last memory of tobias being being a pretty disappointing performance in that celtic series so yeah I, I, it's a it's a tough question um especially not knowing what the personnel are going to be around them uh for instance if the sixers were to acquire one or two um shooters that demand respect that's going to be really beneficial for ben simmons someone who's great at setting up three point shooters and um, kicking it out to them in transition. So I like it. I'll, I'll, I like that answer uh, from the fans. And yeah, you think, I, I mean, the, the comparison we brought up earlier of Ben Simmons as sort of this Rondo Blake Griffin hybrid um, is pretty intriguing to think about. Um, there are real similarities that he has with both of those guys. Um, and, you know, just because doc rivers, has that experience doesn't necessarily mean he's automatically going to be able to unlock it in Simmons. 
but he'll at least have some some ideas there, um, which is cool to think about. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be Ben too, and I think it's going to be because he's going to be used a lot more in pick and rolls, especially as the role man. And I think that's going to bring his points per game up by a lot. And I think that's what's going to really see the big production jump in production there, because I expect. Even if Tobias gets better on the margins in terms of his assists, his free throw, you know, attempts and his shooting percentages, I don't expect expect him to go from being a 19 point per game score to a 23 point per game score. I don't see that, but I could see Ben going from a 16 point per game score to a 20 21 point per game score underdog. I could see that happening. So that's that's my big bet. And I don't think Joel Embiid's going to see a big jump in either direction either. So. Yeah, my money's on Ben. Yeah, I, I I guess it really depends on how we define the concept of thriving. <laughs> like, if it's relative to our expectations for the player, I think there's a pretty strong argument for Tobias just because of, frankly, how low those expectations are at this point. But, uh, I mean, obviously, Joel is the best player, and he's probably going to have the quote-unquote best season regardless. So there's really an argument for all three. Like you said, Ben's going to get probably more work at the elbow, more work off the ball in different sets that we have seen some have some success with under Brett, but maybe not to the degree that he will be used under Doc. So it, it really could go either way. I'll, I'll give Tobias a shout-out. I, I think he's due for a pretty solid year. I think a lot of us at this point are almost underrating him as a player, we know what he is, and we, we know what his flaws are, but he, he is still a pretty solid, productive player. His three-point percentage was up around, I believe, 40% the last 20 games of the regular season. So he did see some improvement before that pretty abysmal Celtic series. So do do I think Doc will get more out of uh, out of Tobias? Yes. So I'll, I guess I'll put in a good word for Tobias. I just want to say that I, I just have no faith in Ben Simmons um, being unlocked. I really think he's a head case. That's just my personal opinion. He's He's been this way since he was, I guess, in high school, just very, just in his own world. He's Hollywood Ben, if, if, if I could have the perfect name for him, Hollywood Ben. Joel, I think, is going to flourish. I think he's going to have an MVP type year. Here's why. Number one, he just had a kid. And you know, a lot of people, when they have their first kid, a lot of things in life change in terms of how they see things. So maybe this is that moment for Embiid where he really grows up and he starts taking things a little bit more seriously. And then don't forget, he didn't make any all defensive teams or he wasn't on an all NBA team. So that was a shot at his ego. And don't forget, he just got a new sneaker. So he has a lot more to prove to himself, to his team and to his fans. So I think he's going to thrive with this new coach this year. I think that's fair for everybody that, you know, you or I and everybody else. And I think it's time for Chris. Uh, you want to play us out? Yeah. Um, thanks again to Noah for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, Noah, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you on social media and where they can read your work? Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, you guys, for having me on. Um, yeah, so you can read my stories at NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com. Uh, follow me at, at Noah Levick, just my name. Um, yeah, thanks again to, to you guys. Enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, we loved having you on, and we'd love to have you on again in the future, hopefully maybe a bit sooner. 
um, a bit shorter in time span between episodes than, than it was previously. Um, and yeah, just to everyone listening, again, we really appreciate it. We know there's a lot going on in the world right now, a lot of stress um, hanging over a lot of people. So you spending the time of day with us to talk Sixers really means a lot. And we have some pretty exciting guests and some pretty exciting topics on deck for future episodes. So we would love for you to tune in again. And we'll talk to you all next week. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.